This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. And now, from the Fort Mason Center in San Francisco at SoCap 2017, where impact investors, social entrepreneurs, philanthropists, business leaders, and innovators from across the world have gathered to share ideas and formulate actions that will drive positive social and environmental change. This is a Business Radio special presentation of Dollars and Change. Here are your hosts, Sandy Hunt and Nick Ashburn. Hello and welcome to Dollars and Change, a very exciting episode. I am Sandy Hunt, Senior Director at the Wharton Social Impact Initiative, here with my host, I am Nick Ashburn, also a senior director at the Wharton Social Impact Initiative. And we are joining you for this very special episode of Dollars and Change from the floor at the SOCAP conference. As you can hear in the background, this is the exciting noise of 3,000 impact professionals who are here. Um, as you heard in the intro, social impact uh, entrepreneurs, impact investors, philanthropists here to talk about the latest and greatest in social impact. And we're delighted to bring you this news. We have eight guests we'll be interviewing today, or eight segments, even more than eight guests, because our first guests are a a, a fearsome twosome here to talk about SOCAPs. Let's jump right in with our first guests, Lindsay and Bob. Thanks so much for hosting this fabulous event. Absolutely. Thank you for having us. Glad to have you here. So we're we're excited to be interviewing you guys on this 10th anniversary of SOCAP, which is incredible. Really kind of a momentous milestone for the event and for the space. So, Bob, tell us a little bit about um, how this has grown. We, you, we mentioned there are 3,000 individuals here. What was it like year one? How has this thing grown in 10 years? Well, Lindsay could probably answer that better than me, but I think it started with about 600 people 10 years ago. And it was really the genius and the foresight of Kevin Jones and Rosalie Hardin that had the vision of we really need a convening that brings together you know, the connection, the intersection of money and meaning um, right as we were going into the financial crisis. Um, so it's their, you know, their vision, you know, not only to build the biggest convening in the space, um, but also to build this real community of like-minded people that care deeply about, you know, creating um, uh, convenings and then capital to catalyze, um, you know, more capital flowing into these kind of investments. Absolutely. And so, Lindsay, tell us a little bit about the content and the people who are here. We described them in the intro, but did we get them right? Absolutely. I think. What Bob mentioned is that 10 years ago, the vision was really to convene these conversations that were happening in a variety of sectors. So venture capitalists who are finding social impact in investments where they didn't necessarily know they would find it. Foundations that were understanding ways that they could have impact through investments as well as through their grant making. And they were maybe having those conversations individually, but not all together. And so SOCAP still brings together... Um, about a third of our attendees consider themselves entrepreneurs, but they're for-profit entrepreneurs, non-profit entrepreneurs from very early stage to running major global corporations. About a third consider themselves investors, uh, again, from financial advisors, fund managers, individual investors, foundations that are investing. And that last third has really been the sector that grew over the last 10 years, which is seeing so many more corporations, global NGOs, academia, service providers in this space, like marketers, lawyers, uh, consultants. And so every year we're really interested to see the way that the, the mix continues to be even a larger melting pot because we consider this a big tent and want to use it to bring more people into the space. Fantastic. Bob, you, you mentioned that the sort of impetus for creating this event was to help bring these conversations together that were happening different places. Um, today, what does success look like? What do you hope that the individuals attending this event get out of it? Um, I think part of it is to really meet all you know, similar like-minded people that have the same common mission and goals. And you know, it really is a big tent where we have all different types of folks that you wouldn't normally run into in your day-to-day, so that's really fun. Um, I think storytelling, you know, the value of these types of investments and why you need for-profit solutions to solve some of these world's greatest problems and that philanthropy and government support is not going to be enough. You know, the UN sustainability goals say you need $2 trillion annually to solve some of these issues. So, you know, if we can bring together all those different ideas to catalyze more world change, that's what we're about. And Bob, tell us a little bit about your background and how you personally got involved with SOCAP. Sure. So I've known the founders for a while, and I was in um, the fi- traditional finance business. Um, and then I had kind of an epiphany about 10 years ago and started the foundation to start investing in social entrepreneurs. 
Um, and then we stayed in touch with the founders, and there was an opportunity to step in and to partner with them and to really build out this amazing brand and this convening. Like, there's almost every single continent on the world that cares deeply about social change and social impact. Um, and we've had such magic and success doing it here. You know, we definitely want to broaden that out because there is such, um, there is such growing demand. Yeah, Lindsay Bob referenced storytelling. What, tell, tell us your favorite story about a meeting that happened at SOCAP, something that was galvanized or spurred at this fantastic event in years past, or this year if it's happened already. I would say one of my favorite stories, because I get these stories all the time. People say, you know, I met my first investor at SOCAP, or I found my business partner at SOCAP, or I found a new job. So there's a lot of magic stories that come back to me, which is always a highlight. But one year, the second year that I was working on this conference, I was in charge of an oceans track. Okay. We were trying to galvanize this community around ways they could invest in the oceans to make them more sustainable. And no, and no more beautiful place to be talking about them than right on the water in the San ocean. Francisco. Yep. Yes. And we actually got fishermen here, and we got all these people who really had no familiarity with the investing space or the finance space. And so many of them needed additional capital, but felt like a small business loan or a grant was maybe their only opportunity. And to see them really be inspired and awakened to this community, and then to see our community so inspired by these fishermen's stories. Fishermen are really good storytellers. Yeah, they oh, are. <laughs> I would imagine so, but I don't know why. I guess they spend a lot of time on boats. There you go. So they, they've got time to talk. Yes. Maybe I should have been. Jokes. Maybe I should have been a fisherman. <laughs> you, you tell some. You spin some yarn. Is that what you say? Is that what the know. saying is? Exactly. Yeah. Something like Something that. Something like that. <laughs> so, uh, excellent. So any any um, magic moments with those fishermen? Any capital raised or anything or was it just the sort of ecosystem that was so impressive yeah absolutely there there are some really amazing sustainable fishery um, businesses out there that are really investable and i know that there were at least three that i've heard specific stories about um but many more conversations that i think galvanized really also these blended capital solutions where maybe there is some philanthropic money some debt capital mm -hmm. also some equity investing and so just getting more creative about the ways that we invest in all different types of solutions across sectors uh, is the amazing thing to see happen when you bring these sectors together. Yeah, and that's a good reminder for our listeners who are doing impact work uh, that they should think beyond whatever their assumptions about their capital availability exactly. is, that it's not just grants. And, um, well, and know, it's also not concessionary, right? Yes, There's also yes. a lot. I mean, there is a, obviously a very important place for, you know, concessionary, very deep catalytic um, necessary, capital. But necessary, but not sufficient. But there, but, but there is a real huge opportunity in growing um, field of really, you know, market-based solutions to solve some of these issues. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, Lindsay, I have had either the pleasure or the displeasure, I'm not sure, <laughs> Of, of hosting a sort of similar conference in Texas almost four or five years ago now, um, where I looked to SOCAP as sort of an example of what we could do in Texas. And then, of course, we have our own conference at the Wharton Social Impact Initiative every year. It's, event planning isn't fun in my mind. Like, it's such a challenge. <laughs> and so considering that there are 3,000 attendees here with a variety of, you know, maybe they're 101, they're just learning about the space like the fishermen in your story, or they've been here for 10 years. How do you think about programming a conference for that diverse audience? That is one of the biggest challenges. <laughs> we do host 140 sessions, so there's a little room in 140 to do 101 sessions, 201 sessions, um, really sophisticated sort of folks who have been in the field for 10 years type sessions. And the magic of SOCAP, how I sort of get out of some of that event planning, <laughs> is that we, we pretty much crowdsource this conference. So right. we have an open platform called SOCAP Open where people can submit session ideas in the spring. Um, we brought in over 60 of the sessions through that platform this year. And all the others that don't go through that platform end up coming in from the community in some way or another. So that's why I call myself a curator, right. not the programming director, is because I'm not directing anything. I'm finding these amazing ideas that are coming through my door and then trying to assemble them in ways that meet the needs of all the various folks who are here. That's and I, I think that's been one of the like, intentional genius behind SOCAP is it's been so aggressively inclusive mm -hmm. and it's been all crowdsourced so the community really feels part of the conference. They're not you know, just sitting there listening to whatever the curators decide that they want to have on stage. So, so I think that's been a big hallmark and, and I think a big differentiation from a lot of other events. Yeah, I would say to our there. listeners who are wondering if SOCAP is for them, 
err on the side of yes. You know, <laughs> the, as, as, as Lindsay mentioned, there are 140 sessions happening. It's a great, you guys have a great online tool for, for looking at all the different sessions that are happening. And the conversations are just they're really popping up organically. I, and I think from 7 a.m. to 10 p.m., there's program opportunity. And I'm sure the conversation extends beyond that as well uh, because there's so much energy for folks. I mean, tons of business cards flying, tons of little impromptu meetings happening around, lots of coffee. Good job on that. <laughs> a crucial element. Exactly. And so, Bob, tell us, you know, we, we've had a little bit of a historical look now where we've talked about what's happening this year. What's the future? What are the next 10 years for SOCAP going to look like? Yeah, so, so we're looking at how do we use our convening platform and big tent operation to help draw a lot more awareness and really evangelize all the other amazing things that are happening in the field that a lot of people don't know. Um, so that's a big initiative of ours this year is how do we pull those stories and partnerships together to help a lot of these other organizations um, expand and grow what they're doing. Yeah, and it's, it's so much fun because it's still a growing space. You know, you, uh, oh, Lindsay, yeah. you mentioned it's still a big tent. Um, we're still early days. And, you know, there's been so much progress over the last 10 years, but there's still a long way to go. So I'm really excited for what you guys are doing, and, and thank you so much. Yeah, and Lindsay, last question. How do folks follow along and, and see what's happening? If you're listening and you want to know what SOCAP looks like and if you might want to attend in the future, what, what, where should they look? We live stream everything that happens on our main stage. So uh, you can watch on the live stream through Friday midday uh, on the SOCAP 17 website. And you just go to SOCAP's SoCap.org. Social Capital Markets. Social Capital Markets. That's what SoCap net. stands for. That's a fumble on our end that we didn't say that. SocialCapitalMarkets.net. Net. Excellent. Uh, so you can watch the live stream there. Also, for many past years, and we'll also upload to YouTube, you can watch SoCap throughout the years. We have it all posted. Fantastic. On the Social Capital Markets channel. Excellent. Well, Lindsay Smalling and Bob Caruso, thanks for putting this together, and thanks for being with us. We've had a blast talking to you. Likewise. Absolutely. Our next guest is Joe Spiker, Executive Director at the Autodesk Foundation. Thanks for being with us, Joe. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So let's start at the very beginning. Tell us about the Autodesk Foundation and about Autodesk, I guess, to frame it. Sure, yes. For those who aren't familiar with Autodesk, we are a software company, and we make software for people who make things. So if you've ever uh, experienced a high-performance car, you've ever admired a uh, uh, skyscraper used a smartphone or watched a, uh, a movie with special effects, you have experienced. So everybody. Everybody. <laughs> yeah. um, we, we, we think that our customers are, are affecting billions of people. So we are the uh, design tools from which folks make buildings, products, and media experiences. Obviously, a huge opportunity for social impact within that description. Yes. Where did the Autodesk Foundation come from and what do you do? Yeah, that's the big opportunity. So um, we, as a company, created a philanthropic vehicle about three years ago called the Autodesk Foundation. And our mandate is to use design and engineering tools and technology to create societal benefit. So that, that social impact and environmental sustainability um, that manifests as architecture firms that are structured as nonprofits, building schools and hospitals in developing countries, to product design firms that are doing uh, medical equipment um, for equity of access to medical tools. Um, we have a portfolio of about 40 company, 40 organizations, and we are focused on climate change. So those organizations that are solving for uh, emissions related to climate mitigation, as well as adapting to a warmer climate. So... Tell us a little about the model, Joe. Uh, I guess what I'm struck by, are you donating the software to these organizations? Is that sort of what you're doing? Or? Well, um, we do both. So we okay. do financial grants as well as software grants. And um, essentially, my, my experience, so I actually, many years ago, um, raised funds from corporate philanthropies. And my experience... I'm was, so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's, it's, it's been a long road to recovery. Yeah. Um, Corporates are not particularly well-suited for donating, making financial grants. Right. Um, what they are well-suited for is leveraging their financial, uh, excuse me, leveraging their human and intellectual capital. Mm -hmm. So that was my experience raising money from corporates that actually I really wanted their expertise as opposed to their funds. And yes, the dollars are table stakes and it, you need to have a grant-making program, but the bigger opportunity is the expertise. And so that's how we've set up our organization. By way of example, one of our grantees is called Build Change, 
they build earthquake resilient homes after disasters. So they are working in Nepal, um, helping to both rebuild and retrofit buildings. About two or three months ago, we sent a team of about 10 autodeskers over to Nepal to help them with their retrofit analysis process. So it typically takes about three days to assess whether you need to tear the building down or to, re, um, or to reinforce it. They got that process down to three hours. Wow. So it's, it's literally leveraging the expertise of the company to add value to society. And now tell us, those, for those individuals, those are full-time employees of Autodesk, and this is an opportunity for them to participate in the Autodesk Foundation's work. They get a, a paid leave and they go to Nepal. Exactly. Fantastic. That's exactly it. Yep. And now the individuals who started, let's use this organization as, a, as an example, where were they coming from? Were they you know, engineers interested or were they you know, Nepalese citizens who were saying, gosh, like, we really have to figure this out? Um, they were actually all engineers who had industry expertise within the company. So we have roughly 10,000 employees globally um, who are both designing and using our tools. And so it's that expertise that allows them to say, oh, you guys are trying to do this analysis on a building. I've built this tool. I can help you improve the workflow through which you make that assessment and make it more efficient and better. So we just had... Uh one of the managing directors, Bob Crusoe, and the producer and curator for SOCAP on just, just before you. And, you know, we talked about the types of folks here, so our listeners might be familiar. But what makes the Autodesk Foundation interested in supporting a thing like SOCAP? Oh, that's a great question. So if you think about the future of the planet, we are going to add about 3 billion people to our roster in the next three decades. Um, we are going to more than double the global consuming middle class. Um, and we're going to have about three quarters of those people living in cities. And, and we're going to need about two times as much energy um, to power all this. Those are all design opportunities. The implications for the built environment are huge. The implications for production, industrial production, all those five billion global consuming middle class folks that need products and things, um, the implications for, for transport infrastructure, those are all design challenges. And so we want to bring, we think that we're the only organization focused on design and engineering solutions for societal benefit. We want to bring this into the mainstream. SOCAP is a gathering of what I think of as um, more risk tolerant funders and entrepreneurs. And so catalyzing that group and getting them excited about the opportunities around design and engineering is is key to our success. Yeah, and Sandy, that's that's what I think about a lot with our students, and I know we hear that from our listeners. You know, they're thinking about these big societal challenges as innovation opportunities, and so I love to hear that you're sort of helping build that infrastructure behind the scenes, almost to to ensure that these folks can succeed. Yeah, that's the opportunity. I would, you know, ha as I mentioned before, um, working with corporate philanthropies, a lot of philanthropy tends to be somewhat conservative, and so you know. If, as a, by way of example, you know, you're dealing with homelessness, you're going to pay for beds and meals, right? Mm -hmm. um, but the, the problem might be related to, let's say, PTSD or addiction. That's a more risky solution. Sure. And so looking for those funders that are, are more risk tolerant and are attacking like the big problems and looking for what's behind the issues is those are our people. Those are the ones we want to access. And that's yeah. why we're here. We like to think of those as the individuals who are curing, not treating, not, you know, treating the sort of, you know, trickle-down outcomes of the issues, but actually getting into those big, difficult issues. So going back to the foundation, one thing I love about what you guys do is you do not um, sort of have open proposals for your funding. <laughs> you find the groups and individuals that you want to invest in, both with, you know, capital and talent. Tell us about that pro process and how you pick the projects and individuals that you want to support. Sure. Uh, we identify opportunities in about three ways. Um, so one of which is through our own internal networks. So as I mentioned, we've got about 10,000 employees. And so folks are doing all kinds of interesting outreach within the design and engineering communities in which they work. We have offices globally. And so we find a lot of really interesting opportunities within our ranks at Autodesk. Um, we also, as, as I mentioned before, are engaged with a number of other philanthropies. Um, and through the network of funders and philanthropies, we look for opportunities in that way. We have a um, kind of what we think of as a, a very close uh, partner in the Lemelson Foundation, who are also here at SOCAP. 
And um, we do a lot of sharing of due diligence and, and deals and opportunities with them. Um, so that's our own networks. And then lastly, some original research. So um, we were looking to the future and saying, what, what should we tackle as um, some of the biggest societal challenges? And climate change is one of them. The majority of philanthropic funding for climate change has traditionally gone into policy and advocacy. Sure. Mm -hmm. And we're on the solution side. Um, and so we commissioned a bunch of original research to look at, okay, um, what are the design and engineering opportunities in this space? And it's led to some really interesting stuff that we are hence trying to influence our networks to get behind as well. So um, those are the three ways in which we kind of source our opportunities. That's, that's so interesting. I'm, I'm thinking of my, my husband, who I talk about on the show a lot, <laughs> and he used to be the head of philanthropic partnerships for the environmental group at Pew. And they focus almost exclusively on global policy change. So, I mean, they've been fabulously successful. But, I, again, so I did a brief stint at IDEO.org. So I really understand the design and uh, the de design space and, and this, this opportunity. Um, and, and I guess what I'm sort of interested from an internal, we, we often talk about intrapreneurship on mm. this show as well, like people who are innovating within big organizations or companies. And it sounds like that's what Autodesk Foundation is sort of doing as well. Um, I don't know if you've ever thought about yourself as an intrapreneur. But how, do you, how have you really tried to align the bottom line of Autodesk and like the core business principles to what you're doing and how you've designed the foundation? The big opportunity is to get all designers and engineers thinking about the societal impacts of their design decisions. So I'm an architect. I'm going to design a building. Um, it should be immediate that the energy efficiency of that building and the resource productivity, the inputs to that building, is very clear to me as a, um, as a uh, decision maker and resource allocator. And so that, to me, is the biggest opportunity that we've got at the foundation, is literally influencing industry. Mm -hmm. um, it's part of the reason why we, we, we invest in storytelling um, to showcase some of these examples of designers who are doing this work in both what is being made and how they're making it more sustainably. And so um, it's one of the reasons why we actually um, are so closely aligned with the company, because there is such an opportunity to influence the tools that we make and hence the customers that we're working with. Um, I'll, I'll give you another example. Great. IKEA Foundation. Mm -hmm. IKEA is one of our um, customers at Autodesk. Um, and we work very closely with our foundation on how do you design the future that we want to see. So I think that we're starting to see some traction in terms of businesses thinking about the societal impacts of their business decisions, particularly in today's political climate. Um, there's such an opportunity for businesses to have more of an impact. And so um, that's, that's how we are influencing both our business and our industry. Excellent. I think this is going to be our last question as we wrap up this segment. We'll come towards it. But can you tell us a little bit, Joe, or is there a trade-off to be made between, um, you know, making these informed, intelligent decisions that are good for, you know, sustainability and climate change and the financial um, impact of one of these projects? That, that is a question that we field all the time. <laughs> and no, absolutely not. It's, it's a complete... Um, Win-wins? Yes. Okay. It, 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 the, the, the idea that it's going to cost more to be sustainable is actually incorrect. And our customers, from a company perspective, talk about cost efficiencies. It's, it's all about the time horizon. So you might have to invest a little bit more capital up front to simulate the building and the energy modeling of the building. But in the long term, those costs are, are paid back in full very shortly by investing a little bit up front. And so if you look at the life cycle of a building or a product or a thing, um, making those capital investments up front, it totally pays back itself very quickly. Excellent. Do you find it's hard to sort of sell people on that idea, or is the zeitgeist around that investment and that time horizon changing? It's technically a structural problem with industry. Mm. So the, the, the person who is operating the building is not the person that's developing the building. It's not the person that's designing the building. Yep. And so we try to cross those silos and market to our customer's customer to ensure that they know that these opportunities exist. Yeah. That's really interesting. So we're going to take a short break, but stick with us. When we get back, we are going to be speaking with Jim Rosenberg, who's the Senior Vice President and Chief Communications Officer at Axion. Uh, we've been speaking with Joe Spiker, who is the Executive Director at the Autodesk Foundation. Thanks so much for joining us, Joe. Thank you. It's been great. This is Dollars and Change on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. We'll be right back. This is a business radio special presentation of Dollars and Change from SOCAP 2017 in San Francisco. Here again are Sandy Hunt and Nick Ashburn. 
Welcome back to Dollars and Change here at the SoCap Social Capital Markets Conference. I am Sandy Marrow-Hunt here with... And I am Nick Ashburn. And we're having a great time talking to folks from philanthropists to corporate foundations to funders, really talking about the latest and greatest around social impact here from SOCAP. Absolutely. So we're excited to continue those conversations, jumping back in with Jim Rosenberg, who is SVP and Chief Communications Officer at Axion. Welcome, Jim. Thank you. It's great to be with you guys. For our listeners who may not be familiar with the great work of Axion, tell us a little bit about the organization. You bet. So Axion means action in Spanish. We started in Venezuela in the 1960s, kind of a private sector peace corps. I had no idea that it was so, that it had that really quite Yeah, quite long tenure. It's interesting. I was looking for press clips last spring when we launched the Oxion Frontier Inclusion Fund, and I found a New York Times article uh, about Oxion's incorporation in the state of New York, and it was datelined United Nations about a private sector Peace Corps type of organization. So that's how we got started. Wow. And financial inclusion has always been at our heart uh, with microfinance and then um, impact investing. And since 2012, seed stage, uh, inclusive fintech investing. We now have more than 30 companies around the world that we work with for that. Wow. So just for our listeners, you know, we, we talk a lot about impact investing on this show, but, you know, microfinance really are, we're talking about small dollar amounts in terms of lending, you know, like in the $100 range or, or maybe sometimes less. And then, you know, impact investing, as you mentioned, going across the spectrum of, of capital. But um, you said you're focused right now a lot on financial inclusion and financial technology, right? That's right. So um, there's 3 billion people in the world who are unbanked or underbanked, who are, for whom the financial system is not quite working and for what them. And what does underbanked mean? So that basically means you don't get what you need from the financial okay. system. So this um, means you have a checking account, but you're using a check cashing that's service right. or you're not maximizing That's right. banking opportunities? Right. Or there are, in a couple of countries, um, millions of bank accounts have been opened in the past three, four years um, for uh, cash transfers from the government to get people connected to the financial grid. That's a great idea. But in a lot of cases, what, what, what we see is people go and they have that bank account, but they take the money out and go back to the world of cash. Mm-hmm. And so that's a real challenge. So technically, they have a bank account, but they're not... They're not using the financial right. markets. Okay, so that's right. underbanked for our listeners and who may not be familiar. Exactly. So at Oxion, what we're really focused on is, is a financial system that works for everyone and having a range of high-quality, affordable financial services for everybody. So if you think about a farmer in India, um, she might only get paid twice a year because of the harvest. Mm-hmm. Imagine if, if there's bad weather. We see from climate change, extreme weather is increasing. So it's really important for that farmer to have access to savings, have access to insurance, uh, and not not have her entire family wiped out by, by one disaster. Yeah, you're, you're pointing out an example that really, I think... Uh, signifies how specific these things can be, right? Whether you're a farmer in, you know, uh, cacao or wheat, you're going to have very different seasons, the cash influx. So you're dealing with an incredibly diverse group of individuals here. And you work with 90 partners, I think, across 40 countries. That's right. So talk to us about the business model. What does it look like for Axion to engage with such a diverse group of stakeholders? It's one of the, the things that that is really rewarding working at Axion because we do have this range of, of partners around the world. I'd say the center of gravity for us today is in Asia, even though we have our Latin American roots. And we're also the largest nonprofit small business lender in the United States. So we're helping men and women um, start businesses and run businesses right here in the U.S. Um, in terms of those partners, they, they range from microfinance institutions such as Banco Sol in Bolivia, which was the first microfinance uh, NGO to become a bank. So the idea, if it became a regulated bank, you could take savings deposits, you could lower the cost of capital, you could grow sustainably. Um, We also work with some startups, such as um, there's a company called Confio in Mexico. And what they do is um, they take electronic invoicing. The government mandates invoicing because they want people to pay taxes. And so that creates a proxy for uh, Confio to understand cash flow and to be able to issue credit to small and medium-sized businesses. We just closed uh, another round with that company, and it's doing quite well. It's exciting. So, Jim, can you help me better understand a little bit about the broader, I guess, what we consider the theory of change behind financial inclusion? You know, why is that a social impact mission? That's a great question. I'm really glad you asked me that. You know, I like to talk about financial inclusion as a means to an end. 
not necessarily an end in and of itself, although we are focused on financial inclusion um, most, most uh, significantly. You know, nobody when they were five years old said, when I grow up, I want a bank account. Or I want a mortgage. I don't, I don't think that was in my, not, first of all, not in my vocabulary. Right. Second of all, like, no, that was not in my mind. Exactly. Now, now, when you were five, you might have said, I would like to have a bicycle, or I'd like to go to university, or I'd like to have a house. You know, how do you achieve those things? Well, it's, it's through financial services. That's one way that it needs to happen. And so that is, that is a very direct connection to development. If you think about the global goals or the sustainable development goals, I don't think any of those could be achieved without financial inclusion. Mm. How could we possibly get um, clean water, um, sustainable agriculture, girls in school, all these things, if people don't have a way to manage their lives in a, in a predictable and sustainable way? It, it really does hit to the stability question, mm-hmm. I think. I mean, we're not just talking about, you know, financial inclusion for financial inclusion's sake, but it, it, it's this underpinning security that households can have when they are more financially literate and understand how they are part of this broader financial services industry. That's absolutely the case. I see it in my own life. My in-laws live in Puerto Rico. We didn't hear from them for nine days after yeah. Hurricane Maria. Yeah. The banks were shut. How do we get money to them? How do they pay for things? And so that's, you know, that's backwards financial inclusion. They're, they're getting, these are people who are bumped out of the yeah, yeah. financial system. Um, and so we see this all, all around us, um, no matter where we live. So it's really important that people have the kinds of products and services that are going to work for them in terms of savings, insurance, credit for businesses. We're announcing this week a new partnership with a company that helps factory workers in Colombia pay for their children to go to university. That's something that's really challenging in that place. And so how do you pick partners when that opportunity presented itself or if you sought it out? What makes for an organization, a group, a uh, you know, company that you say, that, you know, that's a good bet for us to place. We think this is something that's going to really make meaningful change in this area. So Oxion's approach to investing is really looking at financial impact and social impact. We look at the team. We look at the, um, the financials. In terms of our seed stage work with Oxion Venture Lab, um, once, a, once a, a deal is initiated, we have a team in place that will go in in the first three months and basically do a deep dive with that business and say, okay, here's how you can improve your HR processes. Interesting. How's, and this is after the investment, so you sort of like bring in an, an acceleration process or a consulting right. process? Absolutely. So... So it's not, it's not just money. It's also the relationship and the engagement. And our, our entrepreneurs, our, our portfolio companies and partners have told us that this is something that really is, is valuable from Oxion and our network is that we do bring that value add and that partnership to help people. And when you do that, what, are, what have been some things that you've learned? Because that chance to sort of push into those companies and organizations gives you a really unique vantage point on how groups like that are thinking. What are some best practices or lessons learned that you could share with listeners who might be in a similar stage? We, it's interesting. We, uh, a couple of months ago, convened a, a CEO forum um, with our partners at um, Quona and Bankable Frontier Associates and FMO, which is the development bank in the Netherlands. And, right. and the CEOs basically, um, you know, what, what we're finding is um, they, they need help and guidance on things like hiring how do you build a team when you're lean? How do you grow really fast? The culture shift from having eight people to 100 people. Mm-hmm. I think all These of us. sound familiar. Yes, I think <laughs> many of us have gone through this yes. ourselves. Uh, you, know, they, they, you know, things like fundraising. Um, how do you keep fundraising? Yep. Uh, and it's interesting. If you think about the, the folks who are passionate about starting these organizations, right? It's rare that someone says, my passion is operations and having sustainable growth and hiring. So I'm going to start this great social enterprise, right? They typically come with the passion for the issue. That's right. And not those, you know, other skill sets that are really necessary for that growth. Fantastic. Okay, it's really interesting. And so, Jim, we, you know, you've been in this space for a long time, or Axion has been in this space for a long time. What are you most struck by in terms of the evolution of the type of work Axion does and the growth of, let's say, the market or the industry as we're here at SOCAP? What's interesting to me and how things have evolved for Oxion is, you know, 15, 20 years ago, the organization was primarily focused on microfinance. 
And today, we're having conversations with people at major social media platforms. We have amazing partnerships with folks at MasterCard and Citi and MetLife Foundation and, and J.P. Morgan Chase. Uh, and there's, a, there's an understanding, and I think today at SoCap we see this in the, in the air and in the conversations, which is, you know, um, people understand that you can't just, um, you know, go out and, and do good and not think about how it becomes sustainable. That it's really important to have a sustainable approach to development and a sustainable approach to, to fighting poverty. And in that sense, what's exciting is that there are so many actors now in this space as the communications guy that makes my life harder, <laughs> but it's also quite rewarding because we get, to, we get to engage with a range of partners around the world and all different sorts of companies. Yeah. So as we wrap up, we've got a couple minutes left here in our segment. 60 years in, right, Axion? Just about. What's, what's upcoming in the next, maybe not the next 60, but the next five or 10? What's, what's on the next frontier? Well, we're really excited about the digital transformation of financial services. So a lot of our microfinance partners, we're helping them make the turn to be ready for and take advantage of things like mobile money and mobile payments. And um, so we're looking at digital transformation for established players, and we're looking at emergent technologies. Um, we have a startup in, in Kenya that uses satellite imagery to figure out how healthy a farm is in rural areas and wow. then issue credit issue insurance Based over on mobile. those satellite images? That's right. So they're looking and saying, that looks healthy, I see green, that's I right. see a harvested crop. And that, that's factoring into their, into their ability to secure funding? Exactly. Wow. So, so then you don't, have to, you don't have to go and hire a field staff of thousands of people, which, of course, would blow up the cost. Sure, dramatically. Right. So we're, we're, we're kind of um, doing, doing uh, judo or ninja or, or something <laughs> like that with, uh, with these technologies, using them for good and seeing how they can drive down costs and, and, and grow services that do help people and, and make their lives better. Yeah, it's easy to imagine then how that would be a transformational cost savings to be able to employ some of those technologies. Totally. And, and Jim, I'm going to put you on the spot. And maybe in your role you don't know, but I'm going to ask you anyway. <laughs> Blockchain in terms of investable opportunities in the future, is it real or is it just a fad? So my colleagues have screened a lot of companies around blockchain, and, uh, and so far we've, we've invested in one called Coins.ph, which is in the Philippines, is using blockchain to become more efficient um, in terms of overseas remittances, which of course is a big driver mm -hmm. of the economy in the Philippines. Um, just taking my Oxion hat off and putting my digital strategist hat on, because I, <laughs> I did that for a decade before this role, I think blockchain is analogous to the TCP IP technology that we had that created websites. And I was going to say, I don't know what these things are, but <laughs> they it's created websites. Deal. Okay. Yes. So I, I, I'd say watch the space, but there's also an incredible amount of hype. I mean, we just saw an initial coin offering uh, for, for microfinance and that, um, I don't know how that's going to go, but I'm an English major, so what can I say? <laughs> you had a lot of good things to say. Thanks for being with us, Jim. We're going to switch over to our next guest, but thank you for being with us. That was Jim Rosenberg, the Senior Vice President and Chief Communications Officer at Axion. Fantastic work you guys are doing, and enjoy the rest of SoCap. Thanks so much for your time. Excellent. Just a reminder to our listeners, you are listening to Dollars and Change here on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. All the exciting chatter you hear behind us is the sounds, are the sounds of SoCap. We social Capital Markets. Social Capital Markets. We are here on the floor at the Social Capital Markets Conference. We're having great conversations, hearing about what the latest and greatest is, and we're excited to continue those great conversations by welcoming Gina Lamont, the founder and executive director at EcoRise, to our little Sirius XM pop-up studio here. Welcome, Gina. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So, full disclosure to our listeners, you know, <laughs> of course, I, I know Gina and have known Gina now for five or six years, which is kind of surprising. <laughs> we met because why is so that young. surprising? Do you not do you not usually have friends for five or six years? Now? Well, you know, interestingly enough, when I when I was actually in that period of my life, I was moving. I'd moved from D.C. to Philadelphia to San Francisco to Austin, Texas, all within like eighteen months. Yeah. So at that point in time, like it is a little surprising. <laughs> but you know, we met here in San Francisco actually, and. EcoRise had been around, but you were sort of just getting started in some senses. So let's just help our listeners understand, first and foremost, like, what is EcoRise? Yeah. So EcoRise is a social enterprise, which is, first and foremost, uh, inspiring young people to design a sustainable future for all. We work primarily with teachers around the world. We have over 700 teachers right now. Um, and we basically arm them with a program that includes 
curriculum, teacher training, and even micro-grants that we call Student Innovation Fund so that students can learn about sustainability issues and develop their own solutions to real-world problems. And these are students in K through 12, correct? Yep. So this is not students who are in college and choosing to select sustainability as part of their career. Nope. You're, you're making a bet on this being a part of how every student and therefore every individual in our society someday thinks about the world. One of our ethos is really cultivating sustainable intelligence as a native understanding as to mm -hmm. when we make decisions, when we're becoming leaders as adults. Yes. Um, how do we have this sort of mindset from the beginning so we make decisions that are ethical and that we make decisions that really are sort of a systems-based approach? Yeah, that, that's very very familiar to us working at you know at Penn and at Wharton. Mm -hmm. A huge part of our focus is on this talent pipeline development that, yes, we are doing work in the impact investing space right now, but we're also educating the students that are going to be the investors and investment managers of the future. So how do we get impact to be, you know, just a part of how people think about, you know, risks, problem solving and the world? And so, Gina, you know, I, again, I'm relatively familiar with your organization, although it's grown by leaps and bounds since I was last sort of, I had a touch point with, with EcoRise. Um, I can imagine if I'm a teacher listening to Dollars and Change right now, I'm like, well, that sounds really interesting. Tell me more. Um, what, how does this actually work in the schools? Is it a tack on? You know, is it integrated into the curriculum? Do you what? pay? Do you sign up? Do you yeah. get selected? Yeah. So oftentimes districts will pay. Sometimes teachers pay. Oftentimes we have philanthropy or government entities that want to underwrite this program for free in a district or in specific regions around the country. Um, so in terms of the exchange in that regard, it's, it's pretty flexible and different depending on the school. Um, this, the program itself is happening in the middle of the school day. It was built to be something that is actually embedded in the school day and is part of a classroom that could oftentimes be a science classroom, but sometimes it's engineering or architecture or business classes. Um, one of the things that we're motivated by is the fact that students are sitting in a classroom for 14,000 hours of their lives on average. Wow. And what's happening during that time? Why shouldn't that be a time when young people are flexing their innovation muscle, they're exercising, and talk about creative leadership. thinkers, right? Yeah. Like there's no more creative time in your life where you're, you know, not sort of and constrained it's by always a learning experience, yeah. right? And so in the classroom, why are we not cultivating that type of mindset around fail forward and experiment and you know give it a shot, so that by the time they get into college they have a lot more confidence and they have a lot more skills behind them. Yeah. So how long has EcoRise been doing what you do? I started it in 2008. Okay. So you have a nice opportunity to kind of look back and say, you know, how has this affected students that were in middle school when we started and have gone through the program? What do you measure to look at success? And do you have any sort of stories that, um, you know, that you've heard or anecdotes that you've, you know, seen about how this has indeed shaped these students or the teachers? Absolutely. So there's a number of pieces that we're measuring. In general, the top pieces are, um, are they increasing their environmental literacy? Do they know where their food comes from? <laughs> Do they know about water conservation? Um, are they using that knowledge to then make behavior changes? So are they adopting new sustainable living practices? And you do this via surveys? Surveys and also um, cumulative assessment, looking at the types of projects they work on and really from a more complex perspective, seeing, you know, have they demonstrated knowledge and, and skills and such. Um, we also are measuring leadership development and the development of 21st century skills, which includes creative problem solving. They use design thinking methodologies um, to run through their own design challenges as they're working on solving so these solutions cool. or these issues rather. So um, there's a number of pieces we're measuring. Sometimes it's also STEM enrichment when it's science teachers. But um, anecdotally, you know, one of my one of the stories that um, stands out to me is a group of, of um, young adults who were learning about the about waste management and what are the issues around um, the recycling and landfill, et cetera, they found that their school district, in fact, had a bunch of uh, dumpsters that were uh. never, and never full. But there was always one recycling dumpster that was completely overflowing all the time. So they calculated, um, what are, number one, who are the vendors in town that can uh, support our recycling system improvement? Um, what would be the financial return if we kind of rearranged um, how many dumpsters we had for the landfill versus how many for recycling. And they ended up pitching to the superintendent for a suburb outside of Austin for rearranging the recycling routes and the landfill routes and saving the district $50,000 a year. Wow, that's phenomenal. So it's a real world exercise yes, you know, that has absolutely. transferable skills to other things in life. Absolutely. And you said that this is um, oftentimes something to help with STEM education, mm -hmm. science, technology, engineering, and math. Yeah. I think that's what the STEMR. Yes. <laughs> Sometimes it's STEAM now. And they STEAM add the with arts. the arts, yeah. yes. Um, 
But you, I remember you had worked really hard to try to align a lot of your curriculum to the standards, you know, maybe yeah. state-based or whatever, to make sure that it can be embedded. Tell us about that a little bit. Yeah, it's really difficult to have an educational program supporting teachers if you don't play by the rules of the school. And rule number one is align yourself to standards. Yeah. So <laughs> we're aligned to um, the Texas standards, the National Common Core, the um, NGSS, which is Next Generation Science Standards, which is also used on a national level, as well as a bunch of Latin American standards um, out of Mexico that apply to other countries. So um, most of the time that's science classes, but it's also other types of classes, um, such as... Um, engineering and construction. We just launched a, a green business. Uh, we call it the Ecopreneurship Program as well, which is aligned to entrepreneurship and business classes. Very cool. Um, and w are you a nonprofit? Are you a for-profit? And what, no matter what you are, tell us how you arrived at the decision. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are a nonprofit. <laughs> um, however, we do have over 50% of our budget um, is earned through our earned income and our school okay. fees. So sort of a, um, a curriculum development. Yeah. And, um, as, and we've taken out impact loans with investors as well. So we're moving towards a model that would be 100% sustainable from earned income over the next few years. Um, and we've been debating on whether it, it, um, if there's any validity or need to mm -hmm. really fork off and have a for-profit as well. Yeah. To and be determined. I, I just ask because, you know, here we're at SoCap. We've got a variety of entrepreneurs um, who are innovating, you know, in the for-profit space and the non-profit space. And I was just sort of curious where you fell on that spectrum. Yeah, we're in the venture philanthropy spectrum. Yeah. <laughs> Can't take equity, but loans and donations, yes. Yeah. Fantastic. So for those who are interested in learning more about how EcoRise might work, whether they're teachers listening or even just parents listening who are going, wow, like I'm hearing about 21st century skills and, how, you know, they weren't part of my childhood, but how do we make sure they're part of, you know, this next generation? Uh, where can they go? What sort of tools and resources does EcoRise and what does the process look like for inquiring or adopting it into their classrooms? Yeah, just landing on our website, which is EcoRise, E-C-O-R-I-S-E dot -E org. Um, there's easy, very plain site buttons on the front on the front page in which you can get more information. There's a lot of lessons that we have that are free. We have an entire waste audit that you can do in your home or in your schools for free. Oh, neat. We have um, a, a lot of kind of sustainability 101 content, which is also intended to be free for anybody to use, parents, teachers, anyone. Um, and then, of course, you can inquire and we can share some more information with you. Give us an example about another project. So I loved the, the conversation around the recycling versus trash yeah, dumpsters. I feel like we're going to have superintendents going to the website hearing that $50,000 can be shaved <laughs> off their budget if they yeah, right. have kids participating <laughs> in the solutions. Exactly. So what's another example of a project? We've had solar charging stations, which are exciting. We have an aquaponics uh, farms. Okay. What's aquaponics? Aquaponics is where you have uh, fish, typically catfish, um, not, not exclusively. Tilapia is really common. Um, cycling into producing food as well. So it's like a, basically imagine in a, extremely simplistic terms an aquarium connected to a small garden. And so the, oh. the yeah, it, I won't go into the details, but um, <laughs> it, it's very scientific and lots of uh, aquaponics students love to um, eat the fish and eat the salad and, and, sh and share these. It's really quite innovative. Um, we also have water conservation projects that have happened. Students have done audits on the football fields and the rest of the landscaping of the campus mm -hmm. to see that the water is being turned on, the sprinklers are being turned on in, in optimal times. And again, doing lots of calculations and kind of, you know, return on investments, both environmentally and financially to argue to the, to the district itself to make these policy changes. Um, and then we have some things like product design, kind of trash to treasure projects where um, we had students in New Braunfels uh, last year, they had um, dissected the bolus of an albatross. Bolus what is a bolus? Is a fancy word for a stomach, I okay. think. I'm not a scientist, <laughs> but um, it's, it's essentially... Um, and an albatross. And the albatross. Gigantic bird, Huge correct? bird. Yes. And, um, and they're one of the species that um, is really sort of a flagship species in that they're... I don't know if flagship is the word necessarily, but they're, they're a red flag showing the uh, plasticides in the ocean are oh, a real problem like affecting wildlife. Okay. Exactly. And so... The students dissected the bolus of the albatross. They found all these little pieces of plastic. They were shocked. They then did a waste audit on the campus, realized there's no recycling offered at, um, in New Braunfels. And the students had a few different motivations then. Number one, every single 11th grader had to take recycled bottles or, you know, one-time use uh, plastic bottles and create an art project that demonstrated and, and um, educated the public about um, marine life and the, and the issues of plastics. And then secondly... They ended up applying for a grant from us to receive seed funding so they could start with a batch of um, 
reusable water bottles that they branded with the school's mascot. And they would sell them to the student body so that they could completely eliminate one-time use uh, plastic bottles, switch over to reusable bottles. And it was like a, re- a revolving you know, fund, Love right? It. They would yeah. use the first $500 to buy X number of bottles. They'd sell them for five bucks a piece. They would come back. They'd be able to buy, you know, 1000 Reinvest more. the capital. Yeah. So neat. And what I love about this is um, you forget how pushy kids are and what good salespeople, <laughs> like, right? Like the Well, we, I don't at Wharton. <laughs> They're pretty pushy. No, but even if you think back to, like, third graders, you know, when, when, when it's fire safety week, right? They come yeah. home and it's... Stop, drop, and roll. Right. What are like, our emergency exit plans? And, right, it's a great way to sort of push concepts into the home as yeah. well. And parents are talking to their kids about... What did you do at school today? Because they're talking to their friends. And so it is a way, if you have these ways of thinking, I mean, what would be worse as a parent than having and being shamed by your child to go like, it you know, hey, all those, all those plastic bottles in the trash, like, you know, can we use reusable bottles? How would Absolutely. you as a parent say, oh, no, no, no we're, we're sticking with the plastic in this house. So I'm sure it creates really significant uh, change beyond just the schools as yeah, well. Yeah, we, we really, I mean, we say that young, young people, children, are the world's largest untapped natural resource. And it's true that a a, a child will absolutely bully and convince their parents to do the right thing. Despite the politics and philosophy of the parent, they're going to follow the kid's lead. It's so interesting because we very often hear about this phenomenon in a negative light when you talk about marketers targeting children or, you know, products being sold at eye level to children. But really saying, how do we... how do we harness that, that power yeah. in a really positive way? And EcoRise is doing that. So it's, it's really, really neat stuff. And so, Gina, in just in the last couple of minutes that we do have here, I wanted to switch gears to talk to you about being an entrepreneur. What, what do you think has been one of your biggest challenges, uh, you know, as you've built this organization? Yeah. Um, the challenge that I've been facing the last couple of years is really being in this emerging uh, kind of intersection between being a nonprofit that has a strong earned income model and really having to um, forge a path that is wearing both hats at the same time. You know, are, is this philanthropy or is this mm-hmm. an investment? Am I a nonprofit or a for-profit or a social enterprise? What are the words? What's the words in the language you use? Um, over the last several months, we raised a round of, uh, of loan funding to help us scale throughout the, the country. And um, it was successful, but it was a very sometimes awkward conversation and identity crisis for both parties involved, the investor and the investee. Yeah, and I, I feel like that is the exact type of conversation that people are having here at SoCap this oh, year. Oh, for sure, for sure. I mean, there's, it's no longer black and white, right? Nonprofit, for-profit, it's everything in between, but it, it, a vocabulary is still evolving around yeah. that. And, and even for the investors, for those sort of deploying capital, ident- you know, individuals who identified as philanthropists, now thinking about this as an investment, comes with mm-hmm. its own sort of complexity. And so it is a wild west, but it's an exciting time for the space. Totally. Well, thank you so much, Gina, for joining us. We have been speaking with Gina Lamont, who is the executive director, excuse me, is that? Yeah, founder and and executive director. director Founder is the hard part. EcoRise. You should check them out at ecorise.org. We're going to take a short break, but when we get back, we'll be speaking with Lauren Cochran, who's the managing director at Blue Haven Initiative. And a Wharton alum. And Wharton alum. This is Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 111. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.